This episode is sponsored by Flatfile. Importing customer data into your product has traditionally been a time-consuming, painful process until now. With Flatfile's data onboarding platform, product teams can better enable customers to seamlessly import their data with one simple click. Your world-class product deserves a world-class data import experience. To learn about how Flatfile's platform can help you reduce customer frustration and instantly improve time to value, go to flatfile.com slash product-led-alliance. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! And welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am exceptionally excited to have someone here today who I not only admire from a product perspective, but actually I know and uh, went to high school with, which is really fun and probably the only time I'm ever going to get to say that on a pod. Um, (laughs) Or maybe I'm going to get a lot of outreach from my former high schooler friends now. I don't know. Uh, We've got Beret, who is here today. And Beret is the VP of Mobile at Workday. For those of you who don't know uh, Workday, it's an on-demand financial management and human capital software, and it's used by 50% of the Fortune 500 and over 55 million users worldwide. Um, I think many of you will know it because you're used to using it within uh, your HR context at your business. Uh, Bray is a senior product and tech executive with a passion for building exceptional customer experiences. She always brings her growth-mindedness to any challenge that she focuses on and is known for her results-driven approach. She is skilled at creating compelling visions, defining strategy, and driving execution. And to do this effectively, she puts the highest emphasis on building and retaining high-performance teams. She's got over 17 years of experience uh, with strong depth in digital technologies to maximize consumer reach, growth, and retention. She's worked on both B2B and B2C companies and products, and she's worked in small startups. She's worked in huge uh, multinationals. She's worked across retail, SaaS, e-com, travel, telecommunications, um, and has a huge amount of breadth and depth uh, through those experiences. So we are super excited to have her here today. Bray, where are you zooming in from? Thank you so much for the kind intro. Uh, I am zooming in from lovely Kirkland, Washington, which is uh, right outside of Seattle. So, um, I wasn't planning to ask you this question, but actually now I have to. So <laughs> take us back to the old days of Richland High School um, in Richland, Washington. Do you think now, looking back at the person you were then, do you see that you were going to grow into this major product executive and think so product-centrically? Like, do you see any... Um, any signs in that baby beret all those years ago? (laughs) It's a funny question, actually. I think the, a little bit, but I would say it first started probably when I, when I did running start in high school and I had my first coding class and I just absolutely fell in love with technology. Um, and I didn't expect to, I had wanted to be a veterinarian, uh, for so long. And I took my first coding class and I remember creating a smiley face that winked and it is just, it was so transformational for me. Um, it was that moment on, I was like, okay, I'm going to be in tech. I love it. Um, And I actually kind of started down the path of software development and then found my way into management information systems in school. Um, So it kind of had that blend of of both there. Um, And and yeah, I just kind of have have always followed my passion. But but thinking back, like that was kind of the moment that transformed everything for me. 
such a good plug for Running Start or any of the programs that get kids into college courses or uh, tech courses. So, oh, it's amazing. Uh, I have a nine year old who in school is uh, learning Python, and it's just it blows me away how fast they are they're learning these days. So. We we had a woman on the pod um, about six months ago named Elizabeth Tweedle, and she is the CEO of um, Cy- Cypher Coders. And oh, great. it's all about helping kids learn coding skills. Um, and I, it's not surprising to me to hear that you've got a nine-year-old doing it because it makes perfect sense. So Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. He's built Minecraft games and all sorts of things. Um, and they... I just can't see, we can't wait to see what these kids do when they're older. Just the, the, how fast they catch on to tech is just fascinating. So I completely agree. I can't, I can't wait either. Okay. So let's dive in because you are a really exciting interview subject for more than just the fact that you are a high school uh, friend of mine, but um, (laughs) I loved when we were doing the prep on this, that you wanted to talk about your failure. And so often when people come on this, the show, it's not that they're afraid to talk about their failure, but it's just not the first thing that, you know, comes into mind. And yet with you, you talked about a massive learning that happened. So take us away, talk to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so impactful for me because it wasn't actually that long ago. And I would consider myself someone who has been in product for quite some time and also has a lot of customer centricity training. And so it just, it really surprised me and uh, it, it just more than anything, I think, made me really focus on kind of what I could do better in terms of serving users and customers. So with that, I'll, I'll start. So um, my story is about me joining Armoire, which is a high-end clothing rental service um, backed by machine learning and data. It was launched out of MIT. A good friend of mine um, actually went to school there and her and some... Um, some classmates came up with the idea. It was incubated in MIT, really, really awesome business. Um, essentially it's targeting busy professional women, trying to figure out, you know, how can we make your day easier by, by helping you, um, find clothes that you, you like faster, right? It's not so much targeted towards like the fashionista that always wants new wardrobes. It's more about how can we make you feel super confident, give you an expansive closet that's always up to date. Um, and you know, you can come in and and rent the clothes you need for the week to feel your best, um, with ease. And so that's all the machine learning and the data that's back there. Lots of recommendations. Um, we recommend the clothes that we think you'd like by learning about you, but then we also recommend what to buy based on who our customers are. So we just, we really try to build the best closet possible for the, the women who are using our service. So um, so with that, I, I joined Armoire. I had been an investor. I had been a longtime user. I was super passionate about it. I joined from Expedia. Um, I went from you know running a over hundred person global team that was focused on really cool tech, like um, personalization of travel and identity and these things that I considered to be such hard problems. And I was so excited, excited to join Armoire because it felt like with the experience I had solving these massive problems with globally distributed teams and all of those types of things, while a startup was going to be hard, I was going to be able to take all the experience that I had gained and all the the training I had around customer centricity and all these great things um, and jump in and just like really nail it. Right. I was like, I'm going to be great at this. <laughs> uh, I, I am a user. This is a product I'm passionate about. Um, I've got all this great experience. Um, 
And, uh, and so let's go. And so I, I jumped in and it, it was kind of like that, right? Like we were able to immediately identify all sorts of awesome things that we could do to improve the experience. Um, we built out a new closet experience that was more usable. We added all sorts of features that um, helped customers, you know, better find what they were looking for. Um, but there was one particular problem that I look back on and I just took such a wrong approach and it was such, it was such a big learning moment for me. Um, and so I, I think back to it often and, um, and, uh, so the problem that I'm going to talk about today is about pricing and pricing is hard. You know, I've read a bunch of books on it. I've watched all sorts of videos and tried to learn from all these experiences, um, before joining Armoire, I had never had to come up with the price of a product. Um, I understood the types of things that you do. And Armoire had actually gone through the process of, of coming up with the price in a very um, structured way from MIT, of course, right? So they did all these conjoint studies. They talked to tons of customers. Uh, they did competitive analysis, all the right things. And they set a price for the service that um, was valuable for the customers. They felt like they were getting value out of the service. They were willing to pay that price and it was going to make up good margin for the business. Well, when I joined, we were kind of at a point, we had achieved product market fit. Um, the, the service was starting to expand across the U.S. The customer growth was crazy. Um, and we started kind of diving into how the business was doing. Of course, um, I say diving in, but we watch this like a hawk every single day, but we started diving into, okay, where are some areas where we need to focus, where we need to, um, really double down in order to make sure that the business is, you know, hitting all the milestones we want. Um, and one of the areas that we started to notice was, um, was kind of getting out of bound was the margin. And specifically, when we started to dissect that, it was with shipping. And so like any, you know, great product people, we, we sat down, we tore apart the problem, we looked at all the data, we charted things out. And what we started to realize was there were kind of two problems that stuck out. Number one was as the business had started to grow and expand internationally, we, the shipping was more expensive. Like, yes, of course, a package costs more to ship from Seattle to New York than it costs to ship from Seattle to Seattle. And so as, as our customer base was expanding, so was the shipping cost. But the second one, and the one that was more interesting, was that the average number of shipments per customer was more than we expected. And so what we did is we kind of figured out, we charted it all out. We understood, you know, which customers are shipping, how much. Um, and what we realized was there were customers on, you know, both ends of the spectrum. There were people that were actually keeping their cases for a very long time. They were enjoying the clothes. Um, and then there were people that were actually shipping things almost every single day. And that was really interesting to us and totally unexpected. We, we didn't know why people would be shipping every day. Um, and so when we, when we charted that out, we actually realized that those folks that were shipping that often were a really small subset, like single digit percentages of the customer base. And so this is kind of where <laughs> I'll start to describe the approach uh, and the one that I took that was not the best. And, um, 
it's just so funny to me. So I looked at this situation and I said, well, these people, they're not using the product how we intended it to be used. And I got so laser focused on, okay, well, we've got to figure out, like, this is such a small percentage of customers. We've got to figure out, you know, how we can address this problem with that set of customers so that we don't eat away our margins while we've got, you know, the 90 plus percent of customers that are all using the product as we expected and the margins are healthy and everything's great. And so I got really laser focused on the set of customers. Um, and the first thing I wanted to do again, like any great product person was talk to them and understand like what's going on. You know, why, why are you shipping packages every day? Um, and you know, we, we started doing some user interviews we crafted a survey to send to pretty much everyone that was on this list. And really our intent was actually just to understand like, Hey, you know, what's going on? What, what's causing you to ship a product every single day? Um, and we, we had some things in mind at the time we, we had had a new CFO that joined us. She also had been kind of diving into all of this sort of stuff. And I think Nordstrom was kind of going through their big thing at the time where they were actually cutting off customers who were returning too many things. And so I think we were taking, or I was taking a lot of these points of inspiration and I was going, okay, this is a problem. I have to solve this problem. Um, not really knowing what the solution was, but I sent out the survey to the customers and immediately <laughs> the uproar started. <laughs> The, the customers were so mad. They were so upset, you know, just how could you make me feel like I'm doing something wrong? This is within your policies. We've been customers of yours for a really long time. Um, you know, this, it, it's totally okay to be swapping things this often, you know, things don't fit or this or that and all really, really great and amazing reasons actually. Right. And I spent the entire day sitting at my computer on a couch in our little armoire office, just responding to all of their Facebook posts. They, they were sharing their angst with the world, right? They, they were upset. Um, and I think more than anything, because the survey that we had sent, although it was meant to just really start to understand their usage, it made them feel like they were doing something wrong. It made them feel um, like we were calling them out. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I look back at that moment and there were a couple of big learnings that came from it. The first one was that, you know, in reality, if you're designing a product, the best thing to do is really to just understand the customer and what they're going to need from that product and understand their use case and then build a product that fits them. And I, I think back to, you know, how I was trying to solve the problem and it was totally opposite. I was trying to make the customers fit in with our product. And I was being totally product centric of just like, this is the product. This is how it works. You must fit in the box in order to be a good customer. Um, and, and it, it really taught me a lot because although I had had all this, you know, training and background and was probably like one of the biggest champions of customer centricity, um, I kind of took the opposite approach. And so, you know, the, the story does end well, uh, but I, I look back at that and it, it's just, it's something that was very impactful for me. It's something that I feel very passionately about. And, 
you know, I, I even have been someone who goes and speaks at universities about, you know, product-centric versus customer-centric. Like, I, I really can't tell you, you know, how much, uh, how passionate I am about that subject, but yet I did something that was totally opposite, so. I was on a call today where somebody who I think is really good at a certain skill set said, like, how did I just fail my own such clearly explained rules, right? And he was like so down on himself. So first of all, it's human. Uh, <laughs> but second of all, I mean, in many ways, I think you should be you should be grateful that the when customers revolt experience for you was around a survey, right? I mean, imagine having been the person who recommended the Netflix price hike, you know, that like, <laughs> had people screaming and revolting and like, you know, so upset or, you know, there's so many good examples of customer backlash um, in the grand scheme of things. At least this was about, you know, not a pricing change or a feature change or something, but it's such a good lesson, right? It's such a good right. lesson that you can be the most mindful um, and the most, the biggest believer in something. And yet that doesn't mean that you're not going to um, trip up from time to time, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and what's amazing is it, it sparked a, a totally different solution, right? I think that moment, as hard as it was, really actually made us go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what we're realizing is that customers are behaving differently. Customers have different needs for how many clothes they're going to need and how many shipments they're going to need. Um, and what we really need to do is figure out how to make our service as flexible as possible to meet those scenarios in a way that is also a good business practice, right? Like that's, that's, that is the highlight of product, right? Is like understanding customers, and also being able to build products that build profit and, and good businesses. Um, and so what we did is we actually went back and we, we figured out, okay, what are the key levers, parts of the service that we need to be able to flex? And, you know, how do we make this very simple? Because you also don't want to overwhelm people with choice, right? So how do we make this simple? How do we understand, you know, how many items people should be getting per package, how many shipments we should give them per, per month, or should it be unlimited? Um, and what's amazing is, you know, now we, we have services that are flexible to fit everyone's needs. And it was so helpful too during the pandemic when people's needs changed immediately. Instead of having to lose all of those people because our service was inflexible, we were actually able to offer them different options, such as a two item per month plan, Right. And, and so with that, you know, I think people really appreciated that, that they were able to flex up and down based on their needs. Um, and now if you go out to RMR, what you'll see is there's, there's things like capsule plans where you can get four items a month or seven items a month. You can get plans that have a swap in the middle of the month or not. Um, you can be part of the unlimited program still, but it's, you know, it's priced for an unlimited program for people that really need that amount of flexibility. Um, and overall, I would say, you know, customers are a lot happier because they're able to use the product exactly how they want. Um, and then we were able to add all sorts of other great things to really drive value, right? So for instance, we realized that people's needs change. And so if you don't have a swap, like, why not let you hold on to that and bank that and use it later? And so these are the types of things that you find in the service now that I'm just really proud of. Like those, they are truly customer centric. They are things that, you know, we are trying to help our product fit their lifestyle. 
Um, and you know, it's, I, I think it was a learning moment for me, of course, for my career. Um, but it also was very impactful on the armoire business and it's better for it. So. Absolutely. It's very clear, obviously, um, on the customer centricity versus the product centricity, the lessons learned there. But you said something that was interesting. And I think a lot of the companies and listeners who we have who listen to this pod, they come from smaller um, startups, right? Startups that were founded because the founder was so crazy about solving a problem, they built a whole product and business around it. Um, and what you're talking about there is the, the importance of giving many options and giving flexibility in your product. And yet there's the other side to that coin, which is trying to be the same, be something to everyone and mm-hmm. um, you know, deciding when to say no, right? A lot of people say one of the most important thing a product manager can do is figure out and understand when to say no, right? Um, Absolutely. How do you, how would you like, expand on both sides of that coin like when do you think you are there warning signals that you know you use to make the decisions about you know allowing people to bank shipments or swaps versus things that you said no to because they weren't going to help scale the product in the right way like talk to us about that yeah absolutely um and you know at the core of it i think understanding what your product stands for, what the like primary value that's provided is, is so important and always coming back to that. Um, so with armoire, uh, again, like our, our tenants, our value props were for, you know, busy professionals. We were trying to add convenience. Convenience was a key part of the product, um, as well as, you know, confidence feeling great. Um, and, um, So I think there were lots of cases where we said no to things where it was not hitting our target persona. It was not hitting those aspects. So for instance, there's other services that are more geared towards people that always want to be seen in something new. You know, the, the fashionistas, the, the people that are, um, that are looking for the variety because that's, that's the need that they're solving. Um, and so our service is designed differently and, Um, we really put a lot of effort into who are the customers that we target, who are the, the people that we most listen to in terms of requests and features, um, and just really making sure that we're coming back to those core value propositions, because if we stray too far from that, we're going to end up spending our energy and time on things, um, that are not surrounding our best customers. Um, and we're going to be trying to, you know, like you said, build a service that fits everyone. And the end result of that is you fit none. And so a few examples would be, there's lots of people who have brought up things like, Hey, you know, this would be great for kids. This would be great for, um, men. This would be great for this. Right. And there's all these possible expansions and, and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, maybe at some point those are great natural expansions for the business, but for right now, we have so much growth opportunity with our existing persona. We have problems to solve for them to make the service, you know, exceptional. Um, and so we stayed really laser focused on that. Absolutely. So with things like persona, um, you know, all product leaders have their go-tos, right? Like the, the frameworks, the tools, the methods that they are super, super, you know, passionate about, um, and find to be vital to their success. You know, what, what, uh, you know, what would you say is in your toolbox out of curiosity? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, 
I, I would say the number one tool for me in terms of product is actually just the learning culture. Um, I always come back to that. So while I do, I value personas for sure. I think you need to know who your, who your customers are, what they're doing. Um, and it really helps you kind of put yourself in their shoes, but also know who to talk to in order to, to understand customer needs and things like that. Um, I, I still would say though, that the number one thing that has, um, stuck with me in my career is just this idea of a test and learn mindset of a, any solution is just an idea, right? So if you understand uh, a problem that you're trying to solve, and then you come up with a solution to solve that problem, taking that as it's a hypothesis, you don't know for sure if that solution is actually going to solve the, the problem in the way you intend it to. And so when you have that mindset, you design ways of proving if that solution is working or not. And what I will say is from my experience, you know, when you're really highly optimized in that environment, two thirds of the ideas you have don't work. Um, so that was my experience at places like Expedia or GoDaddy, where there was lots of test and learn culture. Um, and so you, you just kind of learn that you really have to be adaptable. And the critical point is actually learning. Failures are not bad. In fact, when you put something out there that you expect to, to solve a particular problem and result in some certain outcome, whether it's you know increased orders or it's increased retention or whatever it is, um, and it doesn't do that, a lot of times you can take away learnings that make the end solution even better. Um, and, and I can think of so many, so many different times that, that we did that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because being in a startup, the one thing that I think was different for me was we did not have as much data. You know, we didn't have millions of customers on our platform every single day. Um, and what I loved about it is it brought me a lot closer back to the customer, lots more user interviews and panels. Um, usertesting.com was a huge tool that we used. Um, and really I had to kind of adapt the way that I learned. Um, but I still kept that focus on, on learning, um, and just adjusted the methods that I was used to using. Great advice. Great advice. So you're no longer at Amwar. Um, why, why is that? What piqued your interest to take you somewhere else? What are you doing these days? Yeah, actually, uh, it's it's kind of a lovely story. So I um, I am still their ad advisor, and so I get to work with them every single week. Um, but when the pandemic hit, you know, my husband had his own business. I was in a small company, um, and we have two little kids, and we kind of just looked at each other. And you know, my husband was consulting with lots of major airlines. <laughs> you you can imagine the situation. I was working in high end clothing rental. Uh, we kind of just looked at each other and went okay, like this is a moment where we need to make some family decisions. And I was so fortunate because, um, you know, the CEO that I had worked with at Expedia, who I really admire, has taught me a lot in my career. He now is the CEO of GoDaddy. Um, and so I actually went over and joined there. Um, it's such a small world. They're also investors in Armoire. <laughs> so, you know, deeply rooted in, in um, the success of the business as well. Um, and, and I worked with GoDaddy for about a year, which was much shorter than I was expecting. I love the whole team there. It's lots of people that I used to work with. Um, they're also solving some very great 
needs right now. You know, they're helping people get online, be successful online. Um, you can imagine how important that is for entrepreneurs who have just had physical presences um, in this day and age. And so they're doing really amazing things. But I actually got a call from, from someone at Workday who I knew, and they had a really exciting position open um, as the head of mobile, the VP of mobile for Workday. Um, and, you know, initially I was, I was, I was happy. I wasn't looking to move or change. Um, but through the process, you know, I just got to know the people, the team. Um, it's a very highly impactful area for Workday. As you can imagine, you know, mobile and B2B is, is a really big thing. Um, I mean, mobile has always been one of the most emerging trends, right? I would call it actually today. It's just, it's not even a trend. It is a thing. We are all on our mobile devices all the time. Um, I'm very passionate about this space. So I was first introduced to mobile um, at Expedia and I did a lot of work there. And, um, and yeah, so I, I, loved the problems that they were trying to solve. And I got to know the culture and the people and just really fell in love with the company. Being in the Seattle area, I didn't know that much about Workday, but they have such an amazing culture. Um, the founders, you know, that was one of their reasons for creating the company. And it's, it's a place that truly lives their values. And, and yeah, I just really enjoyed the team there and the problems that I'm solving um, more so than I expected. Actually, I think, you know, Workday has 55 million users and its employees, and we all spend so much of our time being employees. Um, and Workday caters to employees of all types, office workers, frontline workers, like the, it's just enormous. And uh, Workday is really trying to make employees have a, a better experience at work. Um, and so they're supporting managers and employees and, and all of those, you know, critical relationships. Um, they also have financial software and, and I, I've really found a lot of amazing um, inspiration in thinking about, you know, how can we actually be impacting people's lives um, through their experiences at work? Yeah, I loved one of the things, you know, we were just chatting about before we kicked off the recording today, right? You have spent a majority of your career working on B2C products, right? And services. Yep. And um, you were expressing some of the interesting learnings that you've had about working in a, in a B2B um, product now. So tell us what, what has your experience been? And for someone who's potentially been heavy in the B2C space and is fearful about whether they can get passionate about a B2B, um, what would you tell them? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, so I think the 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 biggest thing for me was a lot of the themes that you focus on in B2C actually are the same things that you focus on in B2B. And that it surprised me a little bit how similar things were. So, you know, right now I'm focused on like how can I create experiences that are simple and easy to use and help people be productive, but I'm also focused on how do I engage people better? How do I bring them, you know, experiences that create more value, things like learning, right, and development. Um, and what's interesting is I am, you know, a tried and true product geek. I think one of my favorite books is Hooked. Another one is inspired by Marty Kagan. And so I really love the idea of thinking about how do you build products that, um, that deliver value to users so much so that they want to come back, that it becomes a place that they um, spend time and, um, and Workday offers that, right? Like we, we cater to the employee experience and 
I think, especially think about the pandemic time and how connected you are to your company and your colleagues and, you know, how you do your work. It, it's critical that we figure out how to best support people right now. So it feels like a very important problem to be solving. Um, and it's a big part of people's lives. So expanding on that one of the things that you and i both share is um, a passion for inclusive design uh, and i know that that's one of the things i remember reading a great article on workday um uh, a few gosh i think it was a few years ago honestly on how they've really tried to bake inclusive design into the process at workday and i also know that we were thinking about how to design some you know situations that are going to be more simple um a big part of that is a being inclusive in who you're thinking about, but also thinking about what accessible and simplicity means for a wider audience. So, um, I'm curious. I mean, uh, the whole area of DNI and um, you know inclusion in product. How has that played a role in your career, uh, if at all? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say at Expedia was where I kind of first started becoming more aware of this. Um, accessibility was a very big focus for Expedia for some time. Um, I wasn't directly leading that area, but I was, you know, very close with a lot of folks that were. And what I loved was um, not only were they just checking off lists about, you know, screen readers can or cannot pick up these attributes um, and navigate through the system, but they also started bringing in experts and people with disabilities to actually test the products and provide real user feedback. And so treating it as another persona, um, someone to gather feedback from, and it was much more effective than getting a report of all the violations and all the things that you know you had to solve. Um, and I continued to see kind of this model in, in other companies I was with. And I would say what I love about Workday is, you know, being a company that is trying to elevate the employee experience, um, they internally have just done so many amazing things when it comes to, you know, how they support their employees. And so DNI is a huge focus for Workday, as is inclusive design on both the accessibility front and the DNI front, right? And so, um, so I feel very lucky that there is a lot of focus on it and there's a lot of support. People like me who run product and technology for a, a big division of Workday, there is plenty of resources and people available to help us make sure that we're doing the right things to build products for everyone. I love it. Okay, we're coming down to our final question, sadly. Um, the first is you have been a CPO at a startup. You have been, you are now the head of mobile at a over $4 billion company. Um, for people who want to grow up and, and become a CPO or become a head of mobile at Workday Next, what do you wish you would have known earlier in your career um, that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've really just always followed the passion that I have. And I never really had a charted course saying, you know, I want to be a CPO or I want to be a CEO or et cetera. Um, in fact, if you ask me what I'm going to be doing in three years, like I probably wouldn't know what to tell you. Uh, I have been someone who has, um, you know, taken the opportunities that were scary you know, I always take opportunities that are scary to me because that's when I find that you grow the most. Um, and the ones that are very interesting, right? There, there's a reason, there's something I can learn. 
Um, I also have been very fortunate to surround myself with just people that are really amazing supporters. Um, I, I would say that a lot of my supporters actually uh, believe more in me than I believe in myself. And they've been the people I've relied on um, in those moments where I'm taking scary jumps um, or they've pushed me to do bigger things than I thought I could. And then, you know, I've been able to prove to myself that I can. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would say, you know, those two things are probably the biggest is follow your gut, take the things that are scary and interesting um, and surround yourself with people that are supporters and kind and humble, but also that, you know, are smarter than you that can really push you to do new and interesting things. So that's great advice. Uh, okay. So we're down to my favorite uh, question of the show, which is if there was a museum dedicated to the world's most important products, um, are there some products that you think should be in there? Uh, they don't have to be the most successful products in the world, um, but they have to be the most important and you have to be able to explain why. So if yes, which product or products would you say should be in the museum? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am going to go with things that are close to my heart right now. Uh, and so the first thing I would mention is my Apple Watch. Uh, the thing I love about Apple watch is being a product geek. It is incredible at creating habits. It surprises me. I have never been a consistently work out, consistently do this type of person. Um, and since I've had an Apple watch, I am, I work out almost every single day because I am so, I have to meet my move goal. It is, it is crazy. If I haven't met it, you know, I will start walking up and down my stairs, you know, at the end of the night. Um, and so I, I always look at it as like something that changed a habit for me that I didn't even think was possible. Um, the second thing I would say is my Peloton. So kind of building off the last one. Uh, we actually got a Peloton because my husband wanted something just easy to use at home. Uh, I really liked, you know, boot camp classes and things like that. And I was not big into spin. And so when we got it, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know. Um, but again, like it has just become such a big part of my life. I love how their product is designed. They've got you know, every, everything you can geek out on, they have social aspects, they have communities, like I'm part of communities for workday and for, you know, moms of Peloton and even for, you know, Rett syndrome, which my daughter has, like I have a community on Peloton and then, um, they just have this constantly streaming, you know, new classes with very upbeat people to kind of get you motivated. Um, and, and lastly, I would say, you know, they, they use badges and things like that as well. So they, they just have, they've put in all the product things you can ever imagine. Right. And they have just built a like very, very engaging and hooking uh, product in a good way because it keeps you healthier. Right. Um, and then the last thing I would say is Owlet. Um, and Owlet, for, for folks that don't know, is a little sock that you can put on your baby that helps monitor their heart rate and breathing and all these wonderful things. Um, as a new parent, uh, you know, four and a half years ago, because they didn't have it with my son, he's nine, but four and a half years ago when my daughter was born, um, you just, there's this moment when they're infants that you're so worried, right? There's just, there's every time you put them to bed, there's SIDS and there's all these things to worry about. And so, um, I bought an outlet and it brought me so much peace of mind. And just knowing that, you know, she was safe, I could roll over and look at it. And I, and, and it's, it, it was wonderful. I remember it would alarm every once in a while, like it would fall off and I would go in and, uh, but it was, 
it was just like, I knew it was there. I knew it was like constantly watching over her, even when I was sleeping and it was great. Um, and what I love about them is they have started expanding. So now they have a product that fits bigger kids. And I mentioned my daughter has Rett syndrome. Um, and you know, she is at risk of seizures and breathing issues and things like that. And she can still wear it and it still brings me peace of mind. And so I can't wait to see, you know, they are still I think they IPO'd recently, um, so they're continuing to build, but they, they're kind of expanding on these products, right, and, and building ones for um, different types of needs, which I just think is really amazing. So for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with Rett syndrome, um, you mentioned it twice, so, uh, and if it helps to raise awareness of it, we certainly want to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what the impact is on your daughter and you as a family? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Rett syndrome is a uh, genetic disorder. It's, it's mostly randomly occurring. Um, there's a specific gene called the MECP2 that has, it can have a deletion or a duplication or et cetera, and it causes Rett syndrome. And, um, what it is, is it's a neurological disorder that kind of impacts lots of different functions from speech to movement. Um, and so, you know, my daughter has a hard time controlling her hands and her body. Um, she's nonverbal. It also puts kids at risk of seizures. They can have breathing issues, all sorts of things. And the spectrum is wide. So, um, you know, you can, many of the kids uh, aren't able to walk on their own. We're very fortunate our daughter does. Um, but these girls are, I say girls because it's one in 10,000 girls. It occurs even more rarely in boys. It's an X chromosome disorder. Um, but these girls are like smart and just beautiful, happy people. And they connect through their eyes. And, um, for us, like, while it's been devastating to see the impact on the things that she can do, um, at the same time, it's just, it's taught us so much. Um, she is happy every day, despite it all. So it's taught us about the things that matter. She has incredible resilience. Um, and she just brings so much joy to everyone she meets. And, uh, and so we, you know, we feel fortunate is as weird as it sounds to just have that experience. Um, and we're also just incredibly hopeful from the scientific community coming out with all sorts of um, different potential treatments and cures. And we are now big supporters of that. There's um, six treatments right now in various stages. Uh, there's a couple of gene therapy trials starting at the end of this year. Uh, and so, you know, we have a lot of hope that there'll be things in her lifetime that will make her experience better. Um, and that hopefully someday we can get rid of Rett syndrome. So nobody has to experience it. Your attitude towards it is commendable. And I think you're, you speak like many people who have loved ones who, you know, deal with different type of disability or um, kind of different experiences. And it's a really good reminder that just because we have a perspective on how life is and how it should be meaningful doesn't mean that when it's not possible, there's not a meaningful life out there. So A, um, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, I think our listeners will uh, learn something from it. And then B, we will all be cheering you and her on for sure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And well said. Yes. Well, thank you for coming today. It was so good to connect. And with that, we have wrapped up another episode of For the Love of Product. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. 
and let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product. 